ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello and welcome to The Health Report with me, Norman Swan, on Gadigal Land. And me, Tegan Taylor, on Jagera and Turable Land. Today, would you be comfortable with AI as one of your doctors? It's already being used in radiology and experts in that area say AI could revolutionise the field. But I don't know, Norman, there's something kind of appealing about an emotionally neutral machine that never gets tired doing my diagnosis. How about you? I think I like a warm human being there. And, um, you know, and then there's almost a profit motive, particularly in radiology. But we'll cover those controversial topics later on. Yeah, also, all I have to do at the moment to convince the internet that I'm not a robot is correctly identify a pedestrian crossing. So maybe they're not ready to be left unsupervised with my x-rays. But Norman, you'll be looking into your favourite topic and mine, COVID. Yep. COVID's still going. It's just coming a little bit off the top of the uh, Christmas surge. And uh, still about 18 million Australians haven't had a vaccine in in the recent past. So we're under vaccinated. What's the implications of that? New research from Britain. And breast cancer. Yep, a controversial breast cancer diagnosis, which still is a bit of a battlefield and leaves women a bit confused. But there's been research which will help them make decisions. Mm. But let's uh, talk about some news for the week. Yeah, there's actually something I have been meaning to ask you about because, as you know, I have kids in school, as do many, many Australians, so I feel like it's relevant to a lot of people. And I've noticed that there's um, the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare says that there's a peak for asthma hospitalisations in around February, around the time that school goes back, which isn't a time of year that I would have usually thought that asthma was spiking. But if it is, I thought it was kind of worth talking about why and what people can do to protect their kids if, if they do have asthma. Yeah, well, this is really interesting. You're right. You think it was during the height of the pollen season and spring and so on. But if you actually look at some, some fascinating research, 13 years of data in Victoria, international research. So w- what that shows is that probably about s- anywhere between 17 and 25 days a year, at least in Victoria, it's probably true of other states in, New- in Australia, are what are called high asthma admission days. And that's between 33 and 51 admissions. And the winning month is February. Uh, May comes a bit bit later and then November, which is around about the spring pollen season. If you look at north and hemisphere countries, it's September. Ah, And school age kids. Same sort of thing. Like that's that's when they're starting school. That's right. So the question is, so I don't think there's any question here that it's not real. It's not just hospital admissions. According, If you look at the global data here, it's emergency department uh, presentations. It's physician visits. Uh, It's real. And school age kids are highest and preschool kids are next on the list. So if that's obviously a trend that's happening, if you've got a kid with with asthma, like how do you make sure they're not one of those those data points? Well, the question is, why does it occur? Mm. And nobody's really too sure, despite all the research that's been going on and the fact this has been known for many years. So is it something uh, allergenic, you know, there's something that causes allergy in schools? Um, the, the evidence is that it's kind of pervasive, whether it's country schools or city schools, it happens there. Some people have thought, well, maybe it's mould because some schools have, have mould and that could be a relationship in some schools. It's probably just 
kids coming together after a break and there being viral infections. In some parts of the world, the temperature is a bit lower in, in September, but it's not necessarily lower in February in Australia, so you can't really blame temperature. So it's probably viral infections and maybe some other allergenic substances in the air. So what parents can do is, first of all, is your child's asthma properly treated? So there are blue puffers and so there are puffers to treat your asthma, um, which is really to treat the asthma attack, to relieve the wheezing. But that's not treatment of the asthma. If you've got a child who's coughing and wheezing, particularly with exercise, waking up at night coughing, that child needs to be on preventer medication. You need to talk to your doctor about that. And the asthma needs to be well controlled because if you've got a child who's going into the school year, who's coughing and wheezing with exercise, uh, coughing during the night and waking up, that you need to be on a preventer medicine of some kind, have that well controlled, and then your child's got a lot of, if you like, kids that tend to end up in hospital are the ones where the asthma is not well treated, and the difference between an asthma attack and what a child thinks is normal is much narrower. You've got to increase that space, that gap between a healthy set of lungs and uh, the attack of the viruses. And this week in the US state of Oregon, they've declared a 90-day state of emergency to address a huge increase in deaths due to fentanyl. In the US, tens of thousands of people a year are dying from overdoses of this drug. It's a synthetic opioid similar to morphine, but it's way, way more potent. It's a prescription drug for really strong pain, but the vast majority of deaths involve fentanyl that's been manufactured illegally. So a huge problem in the US, it has been for years and it's absolutely right now, but it's relatively rare as an illicit drug in Australia. So why is it something we've done right or have we just been lucky so far? It's something that Sam Nichols has been looking into and he joins me now. Hello, Sam. Hi, Tegan. How's it going? Yeah, good. Is fentanyl here in Australia and kind of in what quantities? Uh, Yeah, so fentanyl is here in Australia, but in very small amounts to what we're seeing in the United States. Uh, So the biggest seizure by the AFP was in 2022, and that was around 11 kilograms. Uh, In January alone in the US, 110 kilograms of fentanyl has been seized. And US deaths are actually on the rise from fentanyl and similar synthetic opioids. But in Australia, they're actually declining, according to some research. So it's 50 times stronger than heroin. That makes it a really good painkiller for surgeries. But there has been this this real explosion in illegal drug markets in the US. Why is this happening in the US specifically? So it's a little bit complicated. Uh, One idea is that fentanyl and other synthetic opioids are filling the gap left by prescription opioids like OxyContin. But another one is that it's actually being cooked and made by non-regulated sources like criminal organisations in Mexico. One reason being is that it's actually cheaper and easier to produce than plant-based opioids like heroin. Why wouldn't that be happening in Australia though? Have we done something right? Well, not exactly. Um, I asked a number of harm reduction experts that question and the general vibe seems to be we don't actually know. The mystery is, in the sense, why haven't we had a lot of fentanyl, if it's been produced in China, run through Mexico into the United States? And we have no good answer to why we've been monitoring this now for a good few years. So that's the director of the National Drug and Alcohol Research Centre, Michael Farrell. And he says there's no clear reason why. And there are some other theories as well, uh, one being that Australia's population is too small. Uh, to attract 
illicit fentanyl like we're seeing in the US. And another is that our drug supply isn't favouring synthetic opioids like fentanyl. Okay, so that means it could change. That's what I was told. Uh, In fact, one person I spoke to, Dr. Marianne Jauncey from Sydney's Medically Supervised Injecting Centre, said drug markets can change on a dime. And we're also seeing some pretty concerning trends, uh, one being we're seeing a decline in the global heroin supply, as well as a rise in entirely synthetic drugs. I'm actually more frightened now in a way than I have been. And that's a combination of, you know, we know that global supply and production of heroin is decreasing, but we've also seen this massive kind of disruption to the market because of COVID. And as a result, we've got more new novel synthetic substances within the illicit supply than we've ever had before. So that's Dr Marianne Jauncey there. What should Australia be doing to protect against this? Yeah, so we might not be able to stop the supply of synthetic opioids like fentanyl, but there's a lot of things we can do right now, particularly kind of like harm reduction and public health measures. Uh, Things like increasing access to methadone and buprenorphine programs, uh, more availability of the opioid reversal medication naloxone, and more drug checking and safe injecting services. Uh, For example, Australia only has two areas for safe injecting and one fixed site for drug checking. We already have more than a 1,000 preventable deaths every year from opioids. So even if fentanyl never comes, everything that would work to prevent these fentanyl deaths would work just as well to prevent the large number of lives lost already from opioids. So there's not necessarily a reason to wait. So that's Suzanne Nielsen, who's the Deputy Director of Monash Addiction Research Centre, because she was saying to you, I think that in 2019 there were like a 1,000 unintentional deaths from opioids in Australia, which... It's not as big as this is in the States, but that's a 1,000 people and that's a 1,000 families who've lost someone. Yeah, exactly. It's a really interesting point I found because I think it's it's really easy to forget that Australia has op- an opioid problem already. And while it may not be tied to drugs like fentanyl or other synthetic opioids, it's still just as valid. Yeah, I mean, you spoke to someone who uses heroin for your story and they're worried about fentanyl. Yeah, so I spoke with a heroin user for this story and his name was Lachlan and he had like really interesting experience. Like on one level, he was definitely concerned about fentanyl, but another issue that I guess like he was more focused on was like uh, other issues he's he's facing, like uh, access to clean needles. I have reused them, so that's kind of concerning. Like it used to be five per packet, now it's three. So that's actually quite a different issue, but one that's really at the coalface for people who are drug users. Yeah, exactly. Sam, thanks so much for talking to me. Thanks so much for having me. Sam Nichols is a digital producer for RN with a special interest in drugs and health. It's interesting, um, that, that, that gap in, in Australia, but of course we don't have the opioid prescribing problem, which has led to the fentanyl problem in the United States significantly. Is that because we have... Like, we, we talk a lot about the pitfalls and shortfalls of Medicare, but we do have a universal health scheme here in Australia, and they don't in the States. Well, if you talk to people, it's um, the opioid prescription problem in the United States is a problem of despair. Um, and you look at the most despairing parts of the United States, where there's unemployment, lo- loss of hope, uh, generally loss of social resources and societal resources, that's where you've got the opioid prescribing epidemic. It's a societal thing as much as medical. 
But it, it, it still could happen here. It could, and it could happen in areas where we have despair, this lack of hope. Um, so we can't be um, complacent. Mm. Yeah, still to come in our new extended health report, a controversial breast cancer diagnosis, what it means for women who receive it. New research provides some illumination. There is still lots of COVID around, although the Christmas surge may be showing signs of tailing off. And yet again, there was a spike in hospital admissions. But there's still complacency. According to Australian government data, there are still about 300,000 Australians who are unvaccinated and 18 million 18 million who haven't had a booster in the last six months. So there are quite a few in our midst who are under-vaccinated. What may be in people's minds is whether it matters. Well, British researchers have analysed a vast amount of data from the UK's National Health Service looking at the impact of under-vaccination on the incidence of severe COVID disease. The senior author was Sir Aziz Sheikh, Professor of Primary Care Research and Development and Dean of Data at the University of Edinburgh. I spoke to him earlier. It's a pleasure to be with you. Let's just define under-vaccination. What do you mean by under-vaccination? We looked at how many vaccine doses individuals should have had according to our UK government's recommendations. So at the time of the study, depending on your age, it could have been one, two, three or four doses. And then looked at individuals who had received less than the recommended number of doses and those individuals we defined as being under-vaccinated. And were there features of people who were under-vaccinated? Were they younger, older, poorer, richer? Yeah, so we looked at uh, risk factors for under-vaccination. And so we saw this to be more common in males, those from poorer backgrounds, so socioeconomically deprived, and then also those who had non-white ethnic backgrounds. One of the purposes of the study was to find out what were the implications of under-vaccination in terms of COVID-19 if you actually caught it. What did you find? We were particularly interested in severe COVID-19 outcomes, either being hospitalised for COVID-19 or dying from COVID-19. And what we found was that under-vaccination was associated with increased risk of those severe COVID-19 outcomes. What we also found was a dose-dependent relationship. So the more doses of vaccines that you miss, the greater the risk of these outcomes. Now, you say dose-dependent, which means the number of booster shots that the person had. What the Israeli data looked at earlier on in the pandemic was the time between doses. In other words, did the risk rise six months afterwards or a year afterwards? And I think the Israeli data showed that the risk was pretty low, six months and started to increase up to about a year. Were you able to determine what the risk change was according to the spacing between booster shots? Not in this particular study. That wasn't a question that we were looking at. But what we have shown from earlier studies is that there is definite vaccine waning that occurs. And so booster doses are periodically needed. What percentage of the population of Britain was under-vaccinated or is under-vaccinated? We were surprised that it was almost 50% of the population. So, I mean, 45% of the population had missed one or more dose. You talked about it not being evenly distributed. If you look at Australia, the rate of under-vaccination in the over-65s is much lower than in the under-65s. In other words, people who are older seem to have got the message. Yeah, I think individuals are probably to an extent making a risk calculus in that respect. The Australian population is also majorly under-vaccinated across the board, less so in the older group. 
What reasons are British coming up with for people not being vaccinated? Well, I think there are a number of reasons that need to be thought about. One is about how effective the messaging is getting through to various communities and particularly our minority ethnic communities, for example. I think another issue then is around sort of convenience. So, I mean, are we actually offering these vaccines in as convenient locations as possible? So could we be doing more, for example, to offer vaccines in schools or in workplaces? Another dimension to all of this, Norman, is there's a lot of vaccine misinformation out there as well. And as a result, vaccine hesitancy, I think, in certain sections of the population. Just finally, and going back to the study, you did a counterfactual here. In other words, you said to yourself, well, if the population had been fully vaccinated, what would have been saved, lives saved, hospitalization saved by age group? What did you find? During the study period, what we had was around 40,000 hospitalizations or deaths from COVID. And our counterfactual scenario indicated that around 7,000 of those severe events would have been prevented had there been full vaccination coverage. So important in its own right, but particularly when our NHS is under so much pressure as well, really, that a lot of these events are potentially preventable. And quite a few in the younger age groups. So this was far from isolated to those age 75 and over. So we're seeing events being prevented in across all age groups. However, I mean, as we'd expect, I mean, the majority of those events are in older people. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Aziz Sheikh is Professor of Primary Care Research and Development at the University of Edinburgh. And Norman, just staying with COVID for a second, because I'm sure um, you remember, and I think many of our listeners will as well, that you and I did a little show called Coronacast for a few years. Uh, And one of the questions that we got a lot, especially early in the pandemic, was about whether having COVID when you were pregnant was going to harm your baby. And there's some research into that now. Well, yeah, well, there's research into vaccination and and the uh, the impact of pregnancy. There's little doubt that pregnancy outcomes when you're unvaccinated with COVID um, and catch COVID are poorer. Bad for the baby, bad for the woman. So women women tend to get more severe disease. A bit like the flu. Influenza is bad for you when you get infected if you're unimmunized. And in passing, if you are pregnant, regardless of the season, you should be immunized against influenza to protect you and the baby. And it looks like it's the same thing for COVID. It's, It's not a good thing for you or the baby to catch COVID. What's been the concern of women is, is it safe to be immunised in, in pregnancy? And there was a lot of uh, concern about that early on you, without, you know, when they were gathering the data and it did not seem that there were any immediate problems with babies. And there's been a follow-up study of babies 12 and 18 months after, after delivery um, when their mothers had COVID vaccine during pregnancy. And they were looking at neurodevelopmental outcomes at 12 months and 18 months. And the good news is no problems, you know, no difference between unimmunized mothers and immunized mothers in terms of outcomes there independent of COVID infection. Oh, that's really reassuring. It is another reason for reducing vaccine hesitancy. Now, Norman, you've covered so many stories on breast cancer on the health report over the years that it's probably not worth trying to add them all up. But there's a controversy in a type of, if I got this diagnosis, I would be scared about it. This idea of a ductal carcinoma in situ. But 
is a controversy around whether that kind of diagnosis is cancer and if it's useful, talk me through it. Right. So you're right, it's called Dr. Carcinoma Insight or DCIS. Now, people who've been criticising the breast screening campaign, both here and overseas, have suggested it, it's a bit like the prostate cancer story, you know, where men get a PSA test and then they... They, uh, they're found to have cancer in the prostate, but it's early and is it going to kill them or not? And is it going to turn out to be a serious disease? Mm. DCIS is a precancerous lesion in the breast. And the question is, is it worth finding? Um, and if you find it, how do you treat it? It's found at mammography in most women and needle bi- followed by needle biopsy. And there really has been a lot of argument about how significant it is. It's anywhere between 15 and 30% of breast cancer diagnoses at screening. So it's a lot. And in fact, it, it is a precancer. But the question is, what's the value to women from finding it? Because it won't progress in many of them. And what's the best treatment? Now, there have been two major papers on this recently, which really can help women make decisions. Someone with a long-standing interest in DCIS is Bruce Mann, who's Professor of Surgery at the University of Melbourne and Director of the Breast Cancer Tumour Stream at the Victorian Comprehensive Cancer Centre. Thank you, Norman. Look, this has been a battlefield, DCIS. Let's just define what it is. DCIS is not breast cancer. It's a precancerous change. The cells lining the breast ducts look like cancer cells. They reach the criteria for a pathological description of cancer cells, but the surround, the basement membrane around the duct is intact. And if it's intact, the cells can't get into the breast tissue. Therefore, they can't get around the body therefore it's not cancer. And the challenge is how important is it that we search for and diagnose DCIS and how much treatment is appropriate. And critics of the breast screening program say, well, look, maybe 30% of DCIS, a lot of those will not go on to breast cancer and therefore questions the value of the breast screening program. That summarises it exactly. Many patients who have pure DCIS will not come to harm if they do nothing. There are some studies of long-term observation that show that in low-grade DCIS, it's a minority of patients will go on to invasive cancer even after 20 years of follow-up. The problem is we can't identify those cases of DCIS that are at minimal risk of progression. So we're going to talk about two studies which may illuminate this issue. One is a British study looking at DCIs, Dr. Carcinoma in situ, in women who've been in the breast screening program and women where it's been discovered outside the breast screening program. As a matter of interest, given that there's not necessarily a lump attached to DCIS, how do you find out you've got DCIS if you haven't been in the screening program? There's a few reasons. Before screening, about 3% of all breast malignancies were DCIS. This was mass-forming DCIS. Uncommon, but it happens and it still happens. Another way of presentation is that some DCIS will lead to a nipple discharge, particularly a bloody or a profuse nipple discharge that's unilateral, just one side. We investigate that largely to exclude DCIS. Sometimes DCIS presents as a rash in the nipple. It's a condition called Paget's disease. And then as the authors of the study point out, sometimes these are cases where a mammogram is done for another reason and the DCIS is an incidental finding. So in summary, what did they find? They reported that the breast cancer mortality at 25 years was very low. I think it was 6% 
which is actually higher than long-term mortality from large series from the US and elsewhere. What they did show is that the women who had this pre-cancer diagnosed outside the program had a much higher rate of an actual cancer diagnosed in the next 25 years. That was up to 20 to 27%, so roughly 1% per year. That identifies these as women who are at high risk of developing an actual cancer where there's much less controversy, and therefore they need to take care, definitely keep up with their mammograms, consider risk-reducing medication or, or other measures, even though that wasn't discussed in this paper. I mean, say risk-reducing, we'll come to treatment in a moment, but you're talking mm. about estrogen blockers. Yeah, use of tamoxifen or other treatments that can be effective. Now, in parallel with this, there was a study just out the last few days which looked at interval cancers. So this is not DCIS. This is women whose breast cancers are discovered between screenings. So they're going to the breast screening program and then, lo and behold, you get a tumour, a lump appearing between your screens. And it's long been identified that those women are at particularly increased risk. And this study showed that the genetics of these cancers are different. So they are different cancers. So there's something peculiar about interval cancers that makes them grow faster and so on. Do you think that's true of DCIS, that this group of women who've got non-screen detected DCIS actually have a different tumour? In the British study, they did talk about interval DCIS. They didn't address the genetics. They did comment that the UK program is for screening every three years. So there is a longer time for things to progress. I think we all assume, and the paper you refer to supports this, that interval cancers generally are worse. The simplistic way of looking at it is that they're faster growing, which is why they become symptomatic between screening rounds. Some of them may be more difficult to find on the standard mammogram. So it might be that the cancer was there but was not seen on mammogram. This is the whole area of high breast density, which is a whole other story, but it's relevant to that. Interval cancers do seem to be different, and we need to address the issue of minimising the number of interval cancers, find them early if we can. And just to square off on the breast density story, which we've covered a few times on the health Mm. report, which is that women with dense breasts, one theory is that you miss them on mammogram because the breast is dense and you'll miss a small lump, or there's something about breast density which increases your risk. And it appears to be both. Now, the other battlefield is how do you treat a woman who's got DCIS? Some people say you just need to go to full mastectomy. Some people say, well, you can go to breast conserving surgery, which means you just remove the area. And some people say you need breast conserving surgery plus radiotherapy. And there's a Dutch study which helps you understand this. That Dutch study, and also there's data in the British study that are very helpful. The bottom line is that of patients who have treatment, either mastectomy or local excision alone or excision plus radiation, their risk of dying from breast cancer are very low and they're the same irrespective of which treatment they choose. If someone has less treatment, particularly excision without radiation, the rate of another event in the breast, either more DCIS or an invasive cancer, is higher. And therefore, advice is often to minimise the risk of a local recurrence. You should have more treatment, i.e. have the radiation or, or have the mastectomy. To me, it's really up to the woman. What we're really trying to do is minimise breast cancer death. Each approach is the same. 
A local recurrence is not a good thing to have. It's bad for quality of life. So many women choose more treatment to minimise that risk, but others would prefer to reduce the amount of treatment they have now and are prepared to accept a higher risk. There is quite a bit of work going on in predicting those who are at risk of recurrence with or without radiation. There may be new assays or approaches, but they're still really under investigation. So the bottom line from your point of view, breast screening is worth having. DCIS needs to be treated because a proportion will go on to get breast cancer. To me, it's good to find it and our challenge is to avoid overtreatment. And that has to be an informed decision and the woman needs to be central to that decision. Sitting behind all this and where we started was this debate about the value of breast screening. What's the good, the bad and the ugly at the moment of our breast screening program in Australia? Good, the bad and the ugly. (laughs) But what needs to be improved? our, Our breast cancer mortality has reduced dramatically. That's a combination of earlier diagnosis, largely through breast screen and better treatment. The Participation rate is disappointingly low. It's in the 50s and it's not going up. So a lot of women who are eligible, who are invited, are not participating. And then the issue that we have not addressed is how to address those at high risk, particularly of interval cancer, those with high density breast screen has not changed dramatically since it was introduced in the 1990s. And that's the challenge for the next 10 years. Bruce, thanks for joining us. Pleasure. Thank you, Norman. Bruce Mann is Professor of Surgery at the University of Melbourne and Director of the Breast Cancer Tumor Stream at the Victorian Comprehensive Cancer Centre. The power and potential pitfalls of AI in medicine has been the topic of a lot of speculation But one field where it's already having an impact is radiology. AI has the power to revolutionise the field. At least, that's the message of a joint statement from radiology societies from five countries. But they say we have to tread carefully if we're going to get it right. John Slavodinek is president of the Royal Australian and New Zealand College of Radiologists and was lead author on the article. Welcome, John. Thanks very much, Tegan. I welcome the opportunity to talk about this important topic. So we just heard about breast cancer. How is AI involved in mammograms these days? So AI can be used principally as a second reader, so another pair of eyes to facilitate radiological interpretation. It's not an area addressed directly by the multi-society consensus document we're discussing, but it's an illustration of how AI is increasingly being considered as useful as an assistant to the radiologist rather than a totally autonomous entity, as was being suggested as far back as 2016. Right. So this idea of a second reader, so kind of a a backup, uh, it's also being used as sort of triaging patients like we're seeing with chest x-rays. Can you talk briefly about that? Yeah, in terms of triaging, and perhaps the common example might be a suspected stroke or a list of CT scans of the head, there are some AI applications that will look through where it thinks it has found a significant abnormality. It elevates that on the list for review and reporting by the radiologist, and so it improves the probability that the urgent scans will be seen first. So that's one example of triage that AI is assisting with. Can we talk about the pressures on radiology as a specialty? Because 
at least according to statistics that I've heard, there's the demand is outstripping the supply of human beings who can interpret these images. Is AI just a necessity if the workforce can't keep up? Yeah, so by way of background, there is an increasing demand for imaging being driven by a number of factors, such as the increasing capability of imaging, the number of imaging techniques, rising expectations, of course, amongst patients and other members of society. And of course, although we're increasing the number of radiologists, the growth in workforce of uh, workload, excuse me, is of about 10, 7 to 10%. And so that's very hard to keep up with. So AI represents an enormous opportunity to try and assist a radiologist improve speed of interpretation and thereby address some of that workload challenge. I think one of the first things that sort of comes to mind as a concern as a patient is whether an AI is going to be as accurate as a human. So, uh, again, as a generalised statement, uh, if AI is implemented correctly, and acts as an assistant, the combination of the AI program and radiologist is often more accurate than the radiologist or the AI alone. So that's where part of the opportunity comes. The challenge, of course, is to get it right when implementing AI so that uh, various risks are appropriately managed. Radiologists are part of the AI revolution, helping create these technologies. How much is profit driving this push towards using AI or how much do uh, health providers stand to save on salary if they can channel some of the workload into an AI? So given that demand exceeds supply, the likely scenario is that there won't be a change in the total number of radiologists, at least in the short to medium term, but we'll be more likely to close that gap between the amount of imaging being requested and their ability to provide those reports. Give me a sense of how Australia is using AI in this space at the moment, because I know that there is a fa- fair amount of technology around. There's even some some Australian providers, but they seem to be more active overseas than they are here. I think that's uh, true in general. I think the United States uh, is probably the place where radiology and also cardiology AI applications are, are burgeoning. Within Australia, perhaps one of the commoner applications assists by reviewing a chest X-ray it looks at about 120 different aspects of a chest X-ray and provides advice to the radiologist as to what it thinks it can see. The radiologist looks at the same image, integrates that information, makes a decision whether the AI is correct or otherwise, and finalises the report that goes back to the referring doctor. So that's one of the commonest current applications within Australia. Radiology or uh, is a, a situation where multiple different tasks are addressed by radiologists or, if you like, the human. AI at the moment doesn't have detailed context, so it can't take on broader tasks. The assistance that it provides is task-specific. So it's, it's very important, therefore, that if AI is to be used safely, Uh, It's deployed in a way where a radiologist is able to understand the overall context and detect whether AI is making any errors or is perhaps unaware of other details about the patient. Mm, It's a growth area that we'll continue to watch. John, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you very much, Tegan. John Slavodinek is president of the Royal Australian and New Zealand College of Radiologists and works at Repat Health Clinic and Flinders Medical Centre in Adelaide. 
That's it for the Health Report for this week. Although if you're just itching for a little bit more, we have another podcast. It's called Watch That Rash. Yes, it's where we answer the health questions everyone's asking, although I do personally prefer to avoid the rash questions as much as possible. Well, this week's topic is rash adjacent, as you would say. We're talking about skin care. And of course, you should subscribe to Watch That Rash and you should subscribe to the Health Report podcast. You can find both of them in the ABC Listen app. And I'll reveal my own skincare routine. <laughs> we'll see you here again next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.